as in quarters we lay, which you quickly shall hear. Lord Paget came to us and bid us prepare. Come saddle your horses, for we must ride soon. For the French are now lying in the town of Sargon. As soon as the enemy's order of battle was formed, they cheered in a very gallant manner and immediately began firing. The 15th then halted, wheeled into line, huzzahed and advanced. The interval betwixt us was perhaps 400 yards, but it was so quickly passed that they had only time to fire a few shots before we came upon them shouting, Emsdorf and victory! The shock was terrible. Horses and men were overthrown and a shriek of terror intermixed with oaths, groans and prayers for mercy issued from the whole extent of their front. Our men, although surprised at the depth of the ranks, pressed forward until they had cut their way right through the column. In many places, the bodies of the fallen had formed a complete mound of men and horses, but very few of our people were hurt. Colonel Grant, who led the right centre squadron, and the adjutant who attended him were amongst the foremost who penetrated the enemy's mass. They were both wounded, the former slightly on the forehead, the latter severely in the face. It is probable neither of them would have been hurt if our fur caps had been hooped with iron like those of the French chasseurs, instead of being stiffened with pasteboard. It was allowed by everyone who witnessed the advance of the 15th that more correct movements both in column and in line were never performed to review. Every interval was accurately kept and the dressing admirably preserved. The attack was made just before daybreak when our hands were so benumbed with intense cold that we could scarcely feel the reins or hold our swords. The French were well posted, having a ditch in their front, which they expected to check the impetus of our charge. In this, however, they were deceived. After the horses had begun to gallop, indeed the word of command, left squadron to support, was passed from the centre, but so indistinctly that Major Leach did not feel authorised to act upon it. And at that moment we were so near the enemy that it would have been difficult to restrain either the men or the horses. My post being on the left of the line, I found nothing opposed to my troop and therefore ordered, left shoulders forward, with the intention of taking the French column in the flank. But when we reached the ground they had occupied, we found them broken and flying in all directions, and so intermixed with our hussars that, in the uncertain twilight of a misty morning, it was difficult to distinguish friend from foe. Notwithstanding this, there was a smart firing of pistols, and our lads were making good use of their sabres. Upon reaching the spot where the French column had stood, I observed an officer withdrawn from the melee. I followed and having overtaken him was in the act of making a cut at him which must have cleft the skull when I thought I distinguished the features of Lieutenant Hancock's and as I then remarked he wore a black fur cap and a cloak which in the dim light of the morning looked like blue. I was confirmed in the idea that he belonged to our regiment. Under this impression, although his conduct in quitting the field at such a period struck me as very extraordinary, I sloped my sword and merely exclaiming, What, Hancocks? Is it you? I took you for a Frenchman. I turned my horse and galloped back to the scene of the action. The shock I felt from the idea that I'd been on the point of destroying a brother officer instead of an enemy deprived me of all inclination to use my sword except in defence of my own life. 
Many mistakes of the same kind must have occurred in the confusion after the charge. One of our men told me that I had a narrow escape myself, for that during the melee he had his sword raised to cut me down, but luckily recognised his officer in time to withhold the stroke. At this time I witnessed an occurrence which afforded a good deal of amusement to those who were near the place. Hearing the report of a pistol close behind me, I looked around and saw one of the 15th fall. I concluded that the man was killed, but was quickly undeceived by a burst of laughter from his comrades, who exclaimed that the awkward fellow had shot his own horse, and many good jokes passed at his expense. The melee lasted about 10 minutes, the enemy always endeavouring to gain the carry-on road. The appearance of their heavy dragoons was extremely material and imposing. They wore brass helmets of the ancient Roman form, and the long black horsehair streaming from their crests as they galloped had a very fine effect. Having rode together nearly a mile, pell-mell, cutting and slashing each other, it appeared to me indispensable that order should be re-established, as the men were quite wild and the horses almost blown. Therefore, seeing no superior officer near, I pressed through the throng until I overtook and halted those who were farthest advanced in pursuit. As soon as I accomplished, accomplished this object, the bugles sounded the rally. Whilst we were reforming our squadrons, the enemy also rallied and continued their flight by different routes. Our left and left centre squadrons were detached in pursuit of the chasseurs à Chavelle, who took the road to Carrion. The other two squadrons followed the dragoons, who retired in the direction of Saldana. So that's an account by Captain Gordon of the 15th Hussars, who you may remember from earlier in the season. It's from the Battle of Sahagun, December 1808. It's a fascinating and detailed description of a Peninsular War cavalry charge and gives a real sense of the excitement and confusion of such a moment. On this occasion, the charge was a successful one, but the British cavalry of the Peninsular War are often criticised. After a particularly reckless and wasteful pursuit by his cavalry under Major General John Slade during the Battle at Magia in June 1812, Wellington famously wrote, I've never been more annoyed than by Slade's affair and I entirely concur with you in necessity, this was to Hill, of inquiring into it. It is occasioned by the trick our officers of cavalry have acquired of galloping at everything, and then galloping back as fast as they galloped on the enemy. They never consider their situation, never think of manoeuvring before an enemy, so little that one would think they cannot manoeuvre except on Wimbledon Common, and when they use their arm as it ought to be used, viz. offensively, they never keep nor provide for a reserve. So was Wellington's criticism fair? Were the British cavalry in the peninsula ineffective? What were their strengths and weaknesses? Well, to answer these questions, I'm joined by Marcus Cribb, M. Cribb History on Twitter, for those who are interested, to learn more about the cavalry arm and to try and discover how fair the criticism was. By the way, before we began, I've got a little bit of self-promotion, if you'll indulge me for a moment. My new book is ready to be ordered. It's called The Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsula War, Volume 1. The Battles of Rolisa, Vimero, Caruna and Talavera. I know, just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> but it is available on the Amazon Kindle already, and there'll soon be a paperback version and also an Apple Books version. So please do just search for The Military History Geek's Guide and you'll find it. It's the first of probably a four, four book series on the peninsula. 
So please check that out. It really helps support the podcast and make all this hard work worthwhile. So first off, can you just kind of in, introduce yourself? Tell us, tell us who you are and what your what your interest in the period is. Yes, certainly. So uh, my name is Marcus Cribb. Um, I'm currently the manager of Apsley House, which is also known as the Wellington Museum, or probably Number One London, which was the Duke of Wellington's home after uh, the Battle of Waterloo, and during the period of Waterloo, actually, his elder brother was living there. So it's a real hive of art history because uh, both the brothers really uh, appreciated uh, the finer arts including music and classical um, painters but um, it really just started delving me into what was originally a bit of a boyhood's interest into the Napoleonic era and the further in I go it's such a rich era of history both military uh, politically and socially I, um, I dabbled in a bit of the living history and reenactment but I've spent all my life uh, working and, uh, in museums, running events or running the museums themselves. And so uh, I like to bring them to life. And I love just, just go, going out and talking about history. There's a lot of uh, comments about the uh, Battle of Waterloo and the Duke of Wellington, a lot of misattributed quotes and things like that. So it's really fun to try to engage with people and, uh, uh, and, and bring, the, bring the facts to life. Today we're here to talk about uh, the cavalry, uh, Wellington's cavalry, particularly during the Peninsular War. And what's your what's your interest in that? I understand you've got a bit of a connection to the cavalry yourself. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, by happy coincidence, I used to be um, uh, in the Yeomanry, which is the British Army uh, cavalry reserves. I'm currently uh, in the artillery uh, reserves, uh, but that's actually got a Yeomanry history. So. Uh, we've got our own um, history that's kind of aligned. Uh, most of the yeomanry cavalry were formed in the late 1700s as a form of uh, defence against invasion. So I've had a really nice chance to kind of delve in. I have went deeper into the history of both the yeomanry and the cavalry to uh, go out and give some talks to uh, some of the serving soldiers uh, at the beginning of this year, which was great to do. Brilliant. And, and the regiments that you've served with, is there uh, any peninsular connection there or uh, or not? At the time, no. Uh, at the time, the Yeomanry were really home defence. Um, so they were they were active service, but on the UK shores, doing everything from anti-smuggling to policing, because we didn't have a UK police force until... We didn't have a UK police force until uh, the Duke of Wellington became Prime Minister. It was actually under um, Peel, but it was it, they were called the Peelers, but it was actually... Uh, the Duke of Wellington was Prime Minister when they came in. Um, but no, they were, they were home defence. Uh, mostly doing my regiment, but mostly did anti-smuggling work and up and down the coast and things like that. Brilliant. Okay. Well, let's 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 sort of uh, maybe you could start by giving me a bit of a background to cavalry of the British cavalry of the period. I mean, can you give us a sense of how cavalry regiments were organised and what the different types of cavalry regiments were? So um, they were all organised rather similarly, but they were split into two main branches of heavy and light, uh, and they've all got their own different names whether they're household cavalry or uh, dragoon guards and dragoons and then in the, the light you've got uh, light dragoons and hussars and they later not until after waterloo became lances and they were really meant to be split on different roles um, for reconnaissance for the light cavalry and for hitting home at the enemy for the heavy cavalry uh, this wasn't always the case at all especially under wellington he just kind of used all the cavalry the same um, but they never had enough cavalry um, you couldn't just have seven, eight hundred men of the light cavalry just sat back waiting uh, during a major engagement. 
So the light cavalry uh, were primarily armed with uh, sabers, a curved sword, which I've actually got behind me. And uh, that's very much meant to be for running people down and, and slashing downwards. Um, but the heavy cavalry, um, typically uh, armoured helmets, they didn't wear the cuirassiers, which the French did, and uh, they've got a long straight sword. Typically meant to be bigger men, bigger horses, but there's a bit of a variation um, in between. But they're meant to be far more of a, a punching force directly um, towards the enemy, including their cavalry. Uh, and they're, they're organised roughly the same. Um, a regiment of cavalry doesn't have multiple battalions like an infantry, so you've just got a numeric uh, regiments for most of them. The only exception being really the lifeguards. You've got like first and second lifeguard. Uh, so you've got they're organised into troops. Troops are, uh, are meant to be a hundred men uh, working together under a senior captain with like two junior attests or uh, ensigns. Uh, then they would have a couple of sergeants uh, making up their and uh, a couple of corporals making up their full amount and one trumpeter. And uh, you'd have ten troops to a regiment. So in theory, a thousand men. Uh, with the additions of farriers, farriers saddlers, uniform makers, uh, you'd have um, you'd actually had uh, veterinary surgeons attached. And the, culinary, the College of Veterinary Science had only been established about six years earlier. Mm -hmm. So it was a really new thing to have a qualified vet for every regiment. And they actually had veterinary assistants as well. So that's really forward thinking for its time. Uh, in, in practice, actually, they could never recruit a thousand men um, multiple times over. So they were, they were narrowed down initially to 100, and then they would take individual troops and send them uh, out to the peninsula, form them with two troops, form a squadron, and send anywhere between two to six squadrons overseas. So by the time they get out there, you would actually have regiments that were about four to 800 was the largest, um, but a bit smaller uh, men. Um, and that was, that was common themes. And then you'd leave a few men back in Britain at the depot for, for training up new recruits, but also new horses. It was a constant problem they had um, to find remounts and find new horses throughout So you mentioned the retreat to Karuna, uh, Karunia, Karuna, and um, one of the battles that was fought at the start of that was Sahagun, which I've covered in the podcast. And Oman called that one of the sort of, uh, I can't remember his exact words, but one of the greatest cavalry actions of the Peninsular War. Um, and having read about it, it does seem that sort of man for man, the, the British cavalry seemed to be superior to the French. Is, is that something that was true of the peninsula or is, is, is that uh, completely false? It's really hard with, uh, with like really broad uh, statements because probably overall the, the British army was slightly better than the French. Um, uh, but the cavalry suffered a lot less from conscription than the French army. And uh, certainly something the French normally have, but uh, even at Sahagun, they were outnumbered uh, two to one. Is the French cavalry corps is much, much bigger up until about 1812 with the losing all their horses in, in the uh, Russian campaign. So they tend to be pretty ma well matched. Um, again, it's a, it's a broad statement. Where the French cavalry tend to be better is they tend to have better officers. One of the... Um, one of the kind of popular statements about the British cavalry at the time is that they would gallop at everything and then gallop back again. They had this really um, big reputation for overreaching. So they would go and do an attack and then they would just keep going and keep going, especially the famous at Waterloo where the, the French um, completely exposed that. Um, where at Sahagun is the difference is they've got um, Paget, handsome Henry Uxbridge, as he later is. Um, and... He's a fantastic cavalry commander. 
he really knows how to use them and also use the ground. A bit like Wellington knows how to use a reverse slope or go on the attack at the right time. Uxbridge knows how to use the terrain, get around behind the French and attack them at the, uh, the opportune moments. And Sahagun, I think he catches the French so much that they're actually stationary and they try to defend themselves um, from a, from a stationary position against sweeping in uh, hussars, which is really difficult to do. Yeah, I believe um, I believe so, that was never a successful tactic during the Napoleonic era was to stand still while being charged. But if you're cavalry yourself, correct? Yeah, that's it. It's all about kinetic energy. It's about the kind of two forces of uh, horse and man coming together, quick sweeps of the swords and, and passing and then wheeling round. So to be stationary, they've got the entire advantage. I guess it's um, a bit like sailing. They've got the wind on their side and they're coming in. So uh, that's why Sahagun worked really well. Um, the, the cavalry, they, they start off really quite strong. Um, they're coming out of a lot of period of training and they've gone through a series of uh, reforms, uh, which we'll probably come on to. Um, but yeah, they, they're, they're very good. Um, they're, they're very competent, um, but they are suffering from what the entire army is suffering from that is under bad leadership. They're only as good as their um, leaders. And there were quite a few occasions where um, they, Uxbridge gets replaced by um, Stuart, General Stuart. And uh, he's, just, he's just not fantastic. And there are, there are times where he, he fails to make the charge at the right time. And I think it was during the battle of uh, the second battle of Porto, his, his cavalrymen are just going, sir, you're just making the wrong decisions here. And you need to think about what you're doing. You're about to send, you know, a, a squadron of men against a, a regiment. We're just all going to get massacred. And he's going, yeah, excellent. Just just keep going. Just keep following. And there's, there's questions of his orders. So um, they, they really do suffer under their leadership. And uh, Uxbridge, who's there during the uh, Corona campaign, is fantastic. Uh, he ends up going back. And I uh, quite like the link. He goes back mostly because um, he elopes um, with Wellington's wife. Oh, sorry, Wellington's husband, Wellington's brother's wife. Uh, sister. So it creates a huge, uh, it creates a huge scandal uh, in uh, in Britain as well. I, I feel like that's probably a whole other podcast episode right there. <laughs> yeah, Duke Wellington and his family is a, a fantastic like own, own topic. <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you mentioned it there, so now's a great time probably to bring it up. Can you tell us a little bit about those cavalry reforms that, um, that the British had gone through before the Peninsula War? What, 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 what were they and what changes had they made since the sort of beginning of the revolutionary era? Um, so the cavalry war is this more, this more fashionable area to go into. For example, the officers were actually paying a, paying a lot more to gain their commissions. But they hadn't been used very well. And uh, they were uh, really suffering from um, each regiment having, having its own training and having its own equipment. And they were bought in by the colonel. So there were some regiments that were found, for example, to have really weak swords because um, they're buying them at low cost. And some regiments were having really expensive uniforms, uh, which the men would almost refuse to pay for. And it was observed that when they were fighting in what was termed the low country around the Netherlands, uh, alongside the Austrians, uh, the men were, they said they were lopping um, so wildly, they looked like, wood, like woodsmen, woodsmen. And they would, one of the worst things they would do is uh, cut off their own horse's ears because they're just going left, right and going really wild. And uh, it was a, I think he was major at the, major at the time, but he later became colonel, uh, John Le Marchand. He, he French name, uh, English family. He observed this and uh, wrote these series of reforms to horse guards, which British Army headquarters. And uh, 
He said, A, we need some standardized training because that didn't exist. You didn't go to somewhere um, and everyone was either training at the same time done at the depot. So it was, every regiment was different. So we need something standard. And also we need, we need some swords. We can't just have this colonel has a great, better sword than that colonel because when they're operating alongside one regiment, it's going to break its swords and the other's going to succeed. So he, he wrote uh, a pamphlet and then, then turned it into a book, which was adopted by um, the, the war office, the army. And um, it included everything from, from uh, drills that they practice and practice and for how many hours and, and formations. Famously, a thing called the Six Cuts, which was like a figure of a Frenchman's uh, face. It had the, even had a little moustache on it. And uh, they practiced these so that they actually kind of put the sword out and rotate the wrists. It was all about wrist and forearm strength and uh, doing that on hours. And it also came with guards over head positions and then also obviously swooping down. And so everybody could practice this. It was meant to be drawn or, or pasted on a wall and they practiced for hours at end as well as like kind of fencing drills. Uh, and the other thing uh, Le Marchand did is he proposed the design of two main swords, a, he a heavy cavalry sword and a light cavalry um, sabre. And uh, these were effectively a lot stronger and uh, they had a real purpose. So the heavy cavalry sword had a really wide uh, hilt and basket that was long, um, basically to be held, to be held out and used largely like a lance, a really long straight blade. Uh, it was what stamped down the side, warranted never to fail. It meant to be incredibly strong. It had two tangs and you could get hook it around the enemy's um, sword and hopefully disarm them. Uh, uh, whereas the light cavalry sabre, there's a way to it, I can show you. So for those listening rather than watching, so Marcus like has just pulled a, pulled a saber out from behind the sofa. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do this for both uh, listening and viewing. Um, so, um, so the light cavalry um, sword, 1796 pass. So if you're on a horse, you're naturally going to be bringing this down with a huge speed. And it's got just a slight curve, so you can't hold it in a straight line and stab it into the opponent, really. Uh, it's going to be completely blunt on the back. But what it's designed for is to bring that weight down uh, upon the enemy and uh, it was basically complained about by the French because the weight of it coming down they couldn't sew it up they've done experiments uh, with like pigs, pigs carcasses and it won't just go through the flesh it'll break bones just in force of it because of that extra weight it's a bit like a, 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 a hammer heads coming down so it's got a huge amount of force uh, behind them but it's got areas on it that give it strength and give it um, some robustness and so it's not going to break but also importantly, it was then standardized so that all the light cavalry would have those swords and all the heavy cavalry would have the 1796 pattern heavy cavalry sword. The only difference being that, once again, the officers would tend to buy their own, um, but they would tend to, be, tend to be a version of that with just a nicer handle and nicer grip. You've, you, you presumably have practiced with these swords. How do, how do they feel, um, you know, when you're practicing with them? Like, uh, do, you, do you feel they were probably pretty good weapons for what they were intended for? They, they feel exactly that. They feel a really good weapon for what they're meant to be. Uh, but you really feel that kind of, there's a stereotype also about like British archers doing the Battle of Agincourt having a huge right arm. And it feels like that. You really need to practice for four to, four to six hours a day, which is what the uh, troopers were doing. Something which I don't have the luxury to do every day, six days a week. Uh, and you would, you would absolutely feel that these guys are going to be riding around and probably their right arm is going to be twice the size of their left arm left arm um, I don't know if they've ever found any archaeological evidence of this but they are going to be it's got it's got weight to it uh, it's quite difficult on foot and uh, you can see where uh, 
the the infantry officers were sometimes given these swords and the artillery and they would you would really struggle really struggle it's definitely designed something that is meant to be brought down from a height and uh, that being the advantage so uh, i've got the disadvantage that it's quite long uh, it'd be quite difficult on, difficult on the ground but from from a horse which i've not had the uh, luxury of doing uh, yet maybe one day um it it would be a really good weapon. Um, absolutely. It, it feels strong as well. And it, it feels, you know, like a nasty piece of work. So I, I see on the bookshelf behind you, you've got a, at least one Sharp book of Bernard Cornwall, I can see. Now, Sharp, if I'm not mistaken, famously carried a sort of heavy cav cavalryman's sword. Um, is that completely unrealistic then? Would that have been no, no you know, completely ineffective for him on, on foot? That's it. Um, so... They refer to it in the sharp books as a uh, butcher's blade. So it's the 1796 heavy pattern. That's the light pattern that I held up. And uh, it's really long. So basically the saber edge would be dragging along the ground. Um, it, it, it would be almost like the sci-fi. It almost strapped to your back. It's going to be jangling around. If he's going to be running around rocks and skirmishing with his troops, it's going to be really impractical. But obviously it gives a really nice um, a difference for the books. Um, he would have been issued really quite a thin, slightly curved um, sword, uh, which had been redesigned for the, what they call the flank companies uh, for the skirmishers, um, because they found that they were out and far more likely to be uh, engaging with the French in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, but the heavy cavalry sword, it's something that if you were from the ground, I think you even see Sean Bean do it in the films. It's a bit of a two-handed motion. Uh, he's... He's meant to be quite strong, but he's not going to have the luxury of what a heavy cavalry trooper is doing, which is the six hours training and having a huge right arm. Um, so he'd probably be at generally a disadvantage. But I think it's also that fear factor. If you've got some snarling guy coming at you with a massive sword. And remember that most of the time when you're going to hand to hand musket, you had a chance to fix bayonet. So you've got basically a club with a pointy end. So it's almost like a spear or a halberd. Uh, if someone's coming at you with a sword, actually, they've suddenly got a bit of an advantage over you. Without Once they've gone past the reach, um, they can attack you. Otherwise, you're just trying to punch, fight, scratch them to death. Um, it was there was quite a lot of examples of hand-to-hand. -hand -hand. Within, even within towns, cavalry got involved sometimes, and it, it becomes really medieval. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it wasn't, it wasn't a pleasant form of warfare, I guess. Um... I mean, you, you were talking about uh, La Marchand and uh, sort of uh, the doctrine that, that he wrote. Would, would he be the cavalry equivalent of Dundas then? Would that be a fair comparison? Exactly, yeah. He's, he's the cavalry equivalent of Dundas who, who wrote one of the two draw manuals, which is always, which is always confusing because there's, there's Dundas and I've forgotten the other chap. Who, um, but neither of them are official. Um, well, Dundas, Dundas is later... And that's so it does lead to that slight confusion. Whereas Le Marchand's a relatively junior officer. I think he's a major when he writes his book and then gets promoted to lieutenant colonel. Um, so and then but it does become official, which just kind of streamlines the cavalry and makes it a lot easier. Obviously, officers can choose to ignore it. But back at the depot, back in uh, England, uh, it can be um, easily followed. And it, it's generally a re really helpful, helpful uh, uh, piece that when the cavalry arrived in the peninsula, Wellington and subsequent commanders should know that this is, this is that they are at, rather than having some that are weaker, some that are stronger. Uh, in theory, they all use the same. I mean, when you get to Waterloo, you've got regiments there that have actually managed to miss the entirety of the peninsula war. Infantry as well, but famously the Scots Greys with their glorious cavalry charge and all the paintings. 
they hadn't fought in all of the Peninsular War, but they're still going to be thought of as quite good soldiers because they received the same training. And that's something that you see today with modern armies. But back then, it was very, very much a difference between the, the veterans and the, uh, the raw recruits. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons I read, and, and you'll be able to tell me if, if you uh, would believe this or not, is that one of the reasons the British had this reputation for sort of, you know, charging everything and then losing command of their men was the way the officers and the NCOs were placed in the line when they attacked and that they weren't sort of hemming in uh, the other ranks as well as, say, the French did. So therefore, people kind of went off and did their own thing and it was hard to pull them back. Would that be a fair assessment or, or would you say that's probably not the reason? Um, relatively fair. I think on paper, there are meant to be sergeants to the rear and the sergeants on the corners of, uh, I think they charge in either a three or four rank um, situation. And it depends on where the squadrons were placed. Uh, but typically, the officers were meant to be out the front in, in, a, in a leadership role. And uh, touching on what I said earlier, I mean, they, they purchased their commissions in. Um, they, they tend to cost twice as much to purchase a cavalry commission as it does an infantry commission so as a broad sweeping stereotype they tend to come more from the aristocracy and there's glory and honor and they can talk about it oh, you might get a nice a nice little dueling scar and you, you talk to the ladies about that in london and uh, everyone would know that you're at the battle of sahagun or here or there and you can you'll be able to do paintings of you and you'll become quite famous and it was it was fast route to celebrity I, 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 better than joining big brother or something like that so you're going to, <laughs> so you're going to uh, want to get out there and you're not going to want to. I mean, a lot of the, um, as anyone who's studied military history knows, it's 99% boredom. And the cavalry spend a lot of their time on picket duty, which is like uh, a fourth century duty. We had like one officer, two NCOs and about 20 men guarding bridges. And it's going to be an incredible amount of boredom with the French coming on. You have a little skirmish and you go back. So all of a sudden, all this pent up energy and they genuinely had a, a lot of anguish and um and hate of the enemy that builds up because of this when it comes on the impetus of the charge just drives them on and on and on it happened so often um i think it was at talavera one of the hazar regiments they just kept charging they didn't see a dry riverbed and uh, the whole regiment charged into it most of the horses um breaking their legs uh, which anyone knows anything about equine means that the animals will have to be uh killed and the regiment is pretty much sent back to England, England with no horses from uh, an engagement. They didn't even come into contact with, contact with me. They saw the enemy charge them and then just lost all the horses uh, in one go. So then uh, that was purely down to leadership rather than looking at the ground and maybe, you know, going in at a trot. Well, I tell you what, we've 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 spoken quite a bit about the failures of the British cavalry. Uh, with the exception of Sahagun, we haven't spoken about any time they uh they they how, do, how would i put this they, they performed well is, is there some examples from your knowledge of times where the british cavalry during the peninsula performed very very well and wellington was happy with them lots luckily um they 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 were good uh, overall at what they were meant to do um the big important ones really for the peninsula are the, the boring picket jobs, uh, which don't get many pages in a, in a history book because it is a lot of time out. Uh, um, you'd have your infantry out, but actually beyond them, you'd have mostly your light cavalry. But Wellington often sends his heavy cavalry too and just kind of mixes them all up. And it's really because uh, a screen at night time to defend your forces, but also then the next day they're going off and doing reconnaissance. 
And Wellington's really reliant upon intelligence. He's got his exploring officers, he's got his guerrillas, but his infantry are often going off and uh, collecting intelligence and scouting towards the enemy. And it's something they become really quite proficient at. You said the infantry. And, uh, did you did you mean the cavalry there? Sorry, you said the infantry often went off. Did you mean the cavalry or? Cavalry, yeah. The infantry didn't really. I've said the infantry. Maybe it's because I'm looking at sharp, but the other side of me. Um, yeah, the, uh, they didn't really do uh, as you see in uh, in sharp. You don't really see the rifles going going off and providing like special uh, forces missions. But the cavalry are going off and um, kind of going. They didn't really have um, proper lines uh, apart from at night time. Uh, so they're going off very close to the French forces and uh, skirmishing with their um, cavalry. Going on to the, the main battles, um, the, one of the greatest ones, uh, in my opinion, Wellington's greatest battle. In Wellington's opinion, it was a say, although everyone writes about Waterloo, it was Salamanca. So Salamanca in 1812 is, uh, is Wellington's better battle than Waterloo by a country mile. And... Uh, and there, just to really briefly summarise it, Wellington's kind of marching alongside uh, the French army for six days. He spots a gap in the French advance. He goes on the offensive. In fact, he rides across the entire field to bring in uh, the third division, led by his brother-in-law, Ned Packenham, and rides back, outstripping all of his officers. He's a really good um, horseman. And uh, the third division come in, but they come in with their cavalry right on the French front. Thank and they hit at the perfect time. In fact, Le Marchand, who we mentioned about the reforms, he's leading a regiment at that time. And uh, they, they capture the, the French in squares, and the infantry move up with really good support. And so they, they then start firing at the French, and they can, mathematically, they're going to have a huge frontage against their narrow. So they start decimating the French squares. They go round or kind of you know, outflanking like um, the either side of a cresting wave, the French squares, and go into the French line behind, which is currently marching, and completely overrun the French positions. So much so, they famously capture two uh, eagles and the famous French standards and bring those, uh, and bring those back. Unfortunately, during that time, uh, John Le Marchand, uh, the colonel, was actually killed and shot from his saddle. Uh, so we don't know how much of a fantastic cavalry commander he could have gone on to be. Um, but they, they cause such disarray, they almost get, managed to capture the third and the final French uh, column. And so by the time they're coming back, the, the French marching column in the middle uh, is in disarray and, I mean, pretty much decimated. And the French squares are having to stay in squares because they're keeping up the pressure. And it's this rock, paper, scissors of infantry, artillery and cavalry. And if they manage to keep an infantry in squares once you get infantry in line you know they are going to be cutting through the paper and pushing on and it's a really good use of like a, a tri-armed forces of artillery infantry and cavalry working together and the cavalry do it like salamanca is a brilliant battle of them just hitting the timing right pushing through but then realizing finally when they've gone too far and coming back and supporting the infantry rather than overstretching Brilliant, because we haven't reached Salamanca yet in my sort of narrative of the Peninsula War. So that's that's a great introduction for people. And hopefully when we get there, I can go into to some great detail about that. It's one, it's one of my favourites. So they say Wellington won a battle in 45 minutes. And there's a, I'll let you talk about it. He's got a chicken leg and that's always a bit to look out for when he's eating his chicken leg. It's all going to go well from that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing the backstory on that. 
Um, so just going back a little bit then, more into the sort of nitty-gritty, uh, you mentioned recruitment earlier and you talked about officers. I was interested in terms of the rank and file, were they recruited the same way as the infantry? You know, did they have recruiting parties go around or was, or was it much more, of, uh, much more popular arm to join? Would the rank and file perhaps have differed uh, socioeconomically to, to the infantrymen perhaps? Well, yes, but on paper, I found it a really interesting point to find because they actually wanted people who didn't have equine experience. Um, they wanted people who they could kind of find from um, you know, an equal playing field, which when, I'm, when you look at things like uh, the First World War, when they, as an example, when they're forming tank corps, they're looking for people with mechanical experience. And they, want, they want some sort of um, basic knowledge. Whereas in theory, no, they wanted people who were really likely to have a base level and they could do them themselves. But in, in practice, uh, they actually found that they, they were more popular to recruit from um, the countryside where people might have equine experience. And uh, this would often come you know, from, from farm, ho farm horses. Uh, it was still really a rural nation, uh, Britain, uh, in the 1800s. However, this played to a huge advantage because you've got one vet, maybe an assistant vet, vet for a thousand horses. Um, so it becomes really common that both the farriers and uh, they have an equivalent of a troop sergeant major, major uh, are basically leading in, in horse welfare. And anyone who can bring something, because um, even uh, human diseases there are really struggling with, anyone who can bring in some knowledge, some equine care, and they remember they're not only loving their animals, and I think that's often not betrayed. They do genuinely love their animals, but they they need their they need their horses as the weapon of war as well. So um, horse care is really important. So they are actually finding um, quite a lot that they uh, they, they actually the, the skills they're picking up and bringing in uh, is there. It's not particularly for the common soldier a more popular, less popular, but. I think um, overall um, soldiers are joining the army at the time I've, for a bit of patriotism, um, but mostly for a motivation for a wage, for money, food, or for a chance to escape Britain because of maybe some crime they've committed. So the branch that they join really doesn't matter that much to them, pays relatively similar. Um, the, the difference I found is also some colonels are coming in because they've got this grand idea. Um, I think it was the 16th Light Dragoons. He, the colonel was had from Scottish aristocracy. He wanted it to become a Scottish regiment. So he's going off and sending recruiting parties to, uh, to Glasgow and um, Perthshire uh, primarily. Okay, bring, bring me lots of Scots, bring me lots of Scots. And they're coming back with like two or three men. They're going to Liverpool and they're coming back with 10 or 12 men. Then they go to Ireland and they're coming back with 30 or 40 men. So Ireland's still the main recruiting pool. And he actually has to stop, stop sending men to Ireland because he's got this idea of turning the uh, 16 Light Dragoons into a Scottish regiment. And very quickly, they're about 45% Irish. And he's going, oh, well, we're suddenly going to be labelled uh, Irish uh, Dragoons. And I, I really want, want them to be um, Scottish. So we're going to have to stop that. Uh, so it's it broadly, the infantry have this, um, a similar thing that at any point, the British Army was about um, a third to a quarter Irish, even in the English air inverted commas uh, regiments. So it does it does broadly uh, reflect the, the wider regiments and the wider army. Yeah. OK. And then I wanted to ask, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but it's because I, I genuinely don't have a big knowledge of the cavalry arm. So I'm, I'm kind of interested and sort of my brain's just sort of moving around. What was 
Wellington's opinion of his cavalry in general? I know the, there's a couple of famous quotes and so on, but do you know um, what his general opinion was? And if he sort of tried not to use his cavalry, if he could help it, what would be your opinion? No, he definitely um, used his cavalry when he could. Uh, he was kind of, he's, he's often thought of as a defensive general, uh, but I like to think of actually he, he's a defensive when he needs to be. In places like Salamanca, he goes on the offensive and he, he certainly uses his cavalry. Uh, like I say, he, he doesn't really mind too much whether they're heavy or light. Uh, at the end of the day, they're on a horse, they've got a big sword, we're going to send them in. And uh, he kind of leaves that to his cavalry commanders, uh, either Uxbridge um, and then uh, Stapleton Cotton later, briefly Stuart. And he kind of leaves that to them. So he doesn't have a huge interest in, in them uh, particularly. Something he's always um, saying, actually, one of his biggest complaints is he doesn't have enough. He's always saying, I don't have enough cavalry. I mean, he's always saying he doesn't have enough of everything. He's he's always outnumbered. I, I can barely think of a, um, a handful of battles in the Peninsula War where he's got numbers on his side, not till right at the end of the campaign. He's nearly always outnumbered. But he's always saying that, actually, I've, I've not got enough cavalry because we're having to go and do scouting duties with them. We're losing them in battle, but also we're losing so many men and horses to um, disease. And... Uh, no, genuinely, um, genuinely an, an okay opinion of them. Uh, it's not like some regiments who've got a, a, a reputation for deserting. Uh, when you read it, there's, re there's really interesting regiments like the uh, infantry from like the Chasseurs Britanniques, who were mostly foreign emigres, and they were um, famous for deserting at night. Uh, the cavalry, he kind of, I think he just doesn't quite get in depth with them, he's, which is unusual for Wellington because he's a real micromanager. When you look at Waterloo, inviting individual messages, Look at Salamanca himself rather than sending an aide to camp. Uh, he, he does kind of tend to leave the, the cavalry corps to kind of their own devices and then bring them in when he needs them, uh, which is relatively unusual. Unusual, but he does he does do that with the artillery as well. He kind of focuses on the, the big the big picture and then goes to individual regiments. Um, but I just don't think he he gets the grips with the cavalry uh, enough. Probably because he just doesn't have enough time. He's so busy with the politics of um, the Spain and Portugal, the politics of organising the exploring officers and the guerrillas, and the Spanish and Portuguese courts he's having to constantly deal with. And he doesn't really like having a second in command. So he works incredibly, incredibly long days uh, and dealing with that. So he, probably it's too low down his list, which is a bit of a shame. But he, he does write about the cavalry. He does have those famous quotes. But um, he doesn't, he doesn't use as much as some other uh, aspects of his war, like the supplies and logistics is a bigger headache, maybe. Final f thought then. Would you say that actually the cavalry's biggest significance in the peninsula wasn't the big battles, it was a lot of the other work they were doing? And if so, can you give us a couple of examples? Yes, I, I, I think it is actually. Um, they make some really dynamic cavalry charges and that's what's written about. Um, but majority of their war is going to be spent on picket duties, but on scouting reconnaissance missions as well. They're also doing things like they're protecting routes. Um, they're doing these rear guard actions. And uh, they're actually sometimes assisting uh, provost marshals in policing duties uh, as well. And so the majority of their time is going to be far more uh, mundane. But that's what makes up the majority of a campaign. Uh, Wellington's army spends far more time marching than it does fighting. And uh, I think that was really important is to kind of understand that within the regiment, you've got these got these men. And uh, I said quite early near the beginning that these men who actually got a real love and affinity with their horses, 
but you don't you don't see that very often and when you read accounts of men's horses dying and then breaking down in tears or worse still when they've been told that they need to leave the horses behind and they don't want to leave them to the french having to kill them it's really breaking um the men and there's some really tragic scenes so the war's a bit more uh, mundane for the lot of it and then all of a sudden you've got these glorious cavalry charges going in and i think that's where the pent-up energy kind of that's where you maybe can excuse the officers and the regiments this pent-up energy for months and years of campaigning all of a sudden the enemy are there in front of them you've caught them and we're going to go and attack them and it is for, for honor for glory the flags are waving the trumpets are, are going and it's going to stir something inside almost anyone but especially when you add in the boredom the starvation the cold nights all of a sudden that's that's their one moment um, that's what they're going to have to do and majority of it they, they perform admirably for uh, for wellington and so he doesn't write about them as much as some of his other um, regiments um, and so less information but some of his um, officers, some of the cavalry officers do keep diaries and those are quite interesting to, uh, to delve into and read. Brilliant. Well, Marcus, I think I've kept you enough. I think that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I've learned a lot because like I say, it's not a branch I know a lot about. Um, so if anyone wants to sort of uh, engage in conversation with you further, how can they best reach you? What's the best way to contact you? Um, so I've kind of started uh, doing far more on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm mcrib history. Uh, for Marcus Cribb History on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm on loads of different chat rooms on uh, Facebook, especially at the minute. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Josh, uh, well, digital friend, uh, he runs Land of History. And I think you're talking to him as well. And we're doing, excellent. We're doing uh, YouTube videos as well about Wellington. We're currently doing Waterloo, but then we want to um, talk about more aspects of his later life and maybe his boyhood. And so we can talk about uh, him as a, as him as a person so hopefully people if they're enjoying your videos might go and uh, have a look at those as well so another cracking episode there great interview with marcus i learned a ton from that and i hope you did too Marcus is now a friend of mine and he'll be back on the podcast again in December to talk about the Battle of Talavera and his love for the Sharp series of books by Bernard Cornwall. To make sure you don't miss an episode and also to keep updated on all my videos, please pop on over to my website redcoathistory.com and subscribe. I'll see you guys there. Thanks a lot.